Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Coming up on today's show, more confusion around vaccination, mixing and matching doses. Some say, yeah, do it. Others say, don't. Child care looks poised to play a big role in the upcoming federal election campaign. A couple of provinces signing on to the federal program for hundreds of millions of dollars. And we know the border is going to open. We'll chat with David Jacobson, the former U.S. ambassador to Canada from 2009 to 2013. He says, when that border opens, we better have a plan in place. So as we have discussed, the WHO once again injecting a good deal of confusion and consternation into the vaccine situation around the world with um, a somewhat muddled and seemingly contradictory statement on mixing vaccines. We've been doing it in Canada for, well, for over a month now, actually. And um, we've been doing that following the recommendation from our national health agencies who said this is a good way to do it. So to hear a WHO scientist publicly expressing concern, once again, not good messaging, confusing. And in the meantime, doctors and scientists have now been trying to explain and reassure. So let's get the details from somebody who knows. We're going to chat now with Dr. Alberto Martin, who is a professor of immunology at the University of Toronto. Doctor, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Hi, Shay. Good morning. So the statement from the WHO, I've, I've tried sorting through the complete comment, the following clarifications. I'm still not 100% certain what situation she is directly referring to. Are you, I mean, there's booster shots, there's individuals choosing. What exactly was she saying is concerning to her? I think what she's concerned about, and there's some merit to it, is that, you know, what, mixing vaccines, uh, whether it's the AstraZeneca and the mRNA vaccines, whether we were talking about the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccines, there was not a lot of data that's, that had, you know, suggested that this was safe, right? Uh, you know, whether there might be some short-term or long-term effects on mixing these vaccines. Having said that, there's no evidence that would suggest that there would be a problem mixing these vaccines. But, but I think the WHO were concerned that, you know, a lot of countries were starting to mix vaccines uh, uh, with the hopes that, you know, it would boost the immune response uh, with have, and, and not have much of a uh, uh, short-term uh, and long-term health effects. Now, some publications have come out since then that have suggested that you actually get a very good antibody response against uh, uh, this virus, SARS-CoV-2, when you do mix vaccines. So at least we have evidence to suggest that it's actually a very effective mechanism to boost the immune response. And some of these studies have also shown that, at least in the short term, there doesn't seem to have be any significant uh, uh, side effects that should cause uh, any concern. And she also went on to mention in a, in a tweet later to clarify a little bit that what she's referring to is individuals going out and choosing which vaccine they're going to take. She says we should still be following the advice of public health agencies, but she somehow differentiated between that and individuals choosing. In Canada, you don't really get a choice in so much as this is following the advice of the public health agency, right? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. So when we take a look at this, you know, and also when you talk about the data, the most data around this is 
Astra for your first dose, and then an mRNA for your second dose, which we actually do have data on from not only our country, but several places in Europe. That is correct, yes. And what we're learning from those studies is that the immune response, have you, have you, what's the latest in terms of what kind of response? Because we've been told it's actually better. Yeah, in fact, some of the studies are suggesting you know, that, that mixing vaccines has has produced an increase or boosted the antibody response against the virus. So it's, it's actually shown to be quite effective uh, in that respect. I mean, I'm, I'm actually a recipient of an AstraZeneca and a Pfizer mm-hmm. uh, vaccines. Uh, and, and I think there's a lot of individuals, at least in my province of Ontario, that have, have received that. And so far, the laboratory tests suggest that you actually produce very good antibodies uh, by mixing uh, vaccines. What we still don't know, you know, and, and I think this is what the WHO was getting at, is that there might be long-term health consequences by doing this. But as I mentioned earlier, is, uh, there's no real reason or a priori reason to believe that you know, there will be a, a long-term health effects caused by mixing these two, vi- uh, these two vaccines. And uh, as far as Health Canada and um, NACI and everything, they're sticking with their original recommendation, right? They have not changed in light of this statement from the WHO. They're still saying this is the practice that we're going to be using. Yeah, I think that's the case, yeah. Excellent. Okay. Thanks very much, doctor. I appreciate your time. No problem. Nice talking to you. Yeah, you too. That is Dr. Yeah. Alberto Martin. Yesterday we were talking about the child care plans and how that's going to factor into the upcoming federal election campaign. We uh, told you that there was the big announcement that was made by the um, Nova Scotia government with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday, an agreement on a national, well not a national, but a $10 a day child care program in Nova Scotia, freeing up about $605 million from the feds, about $40 million from the province. Last week, BC came up with a plan that will land them more than $3 billion in funding from the federal government uh, meant to add space and to reduce costs. Uh, it's a federal program, but it's being put on the provinces to implement and come up with, and each province has to come up with their own plan um, to work with the federal government. So it's not like it's a national plan in that sense. It's still being handled by the provinces. Um, Interesting, because this was tried before. Um, Affordable child care was a big issue during an election back in 2005, if you remember. It was a key plank in the Liberal platform, then didn't pay off. Stephen Harper won the election. Now it's back into the discussion. So what's different this time? Let's find out. We're going to chat now with Kate Besenson, who is Associate Dean of Social Sciences and the Associate Professor of Sociology at Brock University, also a faculty research fellow at the Institute for Gender and the Economy at the University of Toronto. Um, Kate, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. Lovely to be with you. So we're talking about child care and affordable child care in our country again and as i said this this happened before um back in 2005 uh, a lot of federal dollars for child care didn't win for paul martin that time around it's back in the discussion again this time so what's different i think the landscape is really different and of course we should always be chastened by previous experiences we've come to the brink before and not arrived at delivering on a canada-wide system But I think one of the things that the pandemic has put in incredible stark relief is that childcare is infrastructure, like our roads and bridges. It it is, and we have emerged out of it with, I think, a multi-sectoral consensus. So we have businesses, we have banks, we have parents, we have 
governments who are saying that childcare is the key to our economic recovery and it's central to calling more women into the labor market to drive that recovery and that sustained recovery that will pay for the needed spending that we've had throughout this pandemic. So it's good for kids, it's good for families, and it's good for the economy. And I think that landscape is very different than where we were in 2006. Also, it's way more money. We've never oh, seen yes. money like this. <laughs> <laughs> it's huge money. I want to stay with the pandemic for a second because I think um, you're right. It, it changed the landscape in every aspect of our lives. But it's certainly around this because there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, when kids were taken out of school and things like that, how that did fall disproportionately on women uh, mm-hmm. and restricted that part of the workforce. And I think a lot of people, like you say, came to an understanding that affordable childcare is good for all of us in terms of keeping our labor market strong. Absolutely. And we really need to think about it as an economic recovery strategy as much as really needed overdue investments in the smallest humans among us. You know, one of the things that Canada is marvelous for is we have this this great decentralized federation where we can have policy experimentation at the provincial and territorial level. But what that can do and what the pandemic has shown us is that we have postal code policy in childcare. So where you live determines what you get. And by the way, the maturity of your childcare system may determine how you and your family recover post pandemic, what your access to the labor market is, what your labor market return is, whether you leave the labor market for a period of time and your lifetime earnings are decreased. All of those effects are, are right now. I mean, we're living this moment right now with the pandemic, but we live with those consequences over time. So you can have a, a family where a woman exits the labor market as a result of childcare concerns and pandemic, can't get back in because of cost, because of accessibility and so on. And we see that her and her children's lifetime risk of poverty increases the longer she's out of the labor market. And also the local economy suffers because that household spending power is decreased. So you're not buying milk at the corner store, you're not getting your hair done, or you're not doing all of those discretionary spending that is a huge driver of how we all get the things that we need. Now, let's get back to the money discussion. And there seems to be two approaches to handling this. Harper didn't go with the $10 a day daycare program that we're hearing about now. What he did instead was hand cash out directly to parents, right? There was yeah. um, there was direct handouts, I think it was $100 a month or something like that. Um, yeah. Something that the Liberals kind of adopted back in the early days of Trudeau when he revamped the Canada Child Benefit. It was direct payments to parents. So this is a different approach in terms of subsidizing the care rather than just giving money directly to the parents. Yeah, so, this, so building, and I say Canada-wide system because... It's not a national system. It's not run by the federal government, right? When we say national, we think it implies like a different order of government. It's Canada-wide, and it's it's provincially run. What what this approach is, a Canada-wide system approach, is funding the services rather than giving money directly to parents. So, you know, the question always comes up, well, why shouldn't we just give money to parents? Like, yeah. parents can make the best decisions for their kids. And, of course, parents are the most important um, players in thinking about how we build this system. The problem with that kind of what we call cash-for-care model is that it it implies this idea of choice, right? So um, it, it implies a decision between equally good options. And what we have in Canada is actually an uneven childcare patchwork that varies in quality, accessibility, and affordability. So the choice is actually a trade-off between huge expense, maybe low quality, meager access, 
sometimes a labor market exit because you can't find care that you can afford that's usually from others. Well, these aren't choices. These are defaults. So we've had this tax credit or direct transfer to families. Those don't build a single space. They don't address quality. And so importantly, they're a super-duper low-wage strategy for mostly female child care workforce because they force families to find the cheapest care available. So the model that makes the most sense, that gives people access where they live, that's community-based and community-planned, is one that funds the services, attends to the cost, because it's expensive, at the same time as attending to quality by attending to the workforce, by paying early childhood educators as the professionals that they are. Now, a couple of issues around that, I'm sure you've heard them before, including from the <laughs> province of Alberta saying, okay, uh, you're talking about choice, um, but this doesn't deliver. This doesn't offer the flexibility that we need to see in Alberta. It doesn't deal with um, rural places. It doesn't deal sure. with shift workers, things like that. Like, we're talking about choice, but this doesn't really offer choice in terms of flexibility. And flexibility is one of those keywords. It's like it's like an exceedingly vague term that means different things to different people, and it's used by everybody in childcare, by the federal government, by provincial governments, by municipal governments, and so on. But it means different things. So some, as you've alluded to, mean it as provincial and territorial governments using public dollars for cash for care to purchase childcare. So a variation on choice instead of developing childcare services. And some, as you've alluded to, mean it as providing childcare for those who work non-standard hours. And then some mean it as being responsive. So flexibility is being responsive to community-directed needs. So this huge, unprecedented investment of $30 billion over five years is absolutely about flexibility in relation to being community-driven. And this includes responsiveness to parental needs about hours. We have to remember that regulated home-based childcare is a really important feature of this Canada-wide strategy. And provinces and territories will need to make those community-based decisions based on what is what is best for those communities. And I think it's also really important that we hold on to the following. Schools, where most kids age 4 to 12 spend their learning days, run from 9 to 3. And the arguments about flexibility for non-standard hours in these settings are really rarely prioritized by those who raise this matter for flexibility around hours in early learning and child care. So I think we need clarity on what we mean by flexibility, and flexibility has to be choice between equally good options, and it has to be community-driven. It's going to look different mm-hmm. in each province and territory. We're all getting to the same destination, affordable, accessible, high quality. But how we get there might be a bit different, and that's good because we are, we are a diverse and lovely but different federation. Yeah, and, and, you know, at least the plan that the Liberals are putting forward does respect that and says it will fall to the provinces to come up with what's best for them. So, yeah. uh, great discussion, Kate. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. That is Dr. Kate Besenson, the Associate Dean of Social Sciences and the Associate Professor of Sociology at Brock University. Talking about the border once again, we've talked about it before, and as I said, we'll find out next week if it's going to remain closed. July 21st is the date that uh, has been set. Uh, we'll see what happens after that, and you know, there's there's two camps out there. Some say, yeah, it's going to be closed for a while. Others are saying, no, it needs to be open. But regardless, um, when we do get back to normal cross-border travel between the U.S. and Canada, uh, we got to have some ducks in a row here. 
Um, we're seeing cautious steps going forward so far. You know, the quarantine rules have been changed for air passengers anyway who are vaccinated. But that has certainly not alleviated the pressure from both sides to get things back to normal the way they were before all of this as quickly as possible. So when it happens, our next guest says, you know, we need to be ready or it could be an absolutely chaotic situation. And those long lines that we've all experienced at border crossings will just be pleasant memories of better days. It could be a real situation. So let's find out why. We're going to chat now with David Jacobson who was the U.S. Ambassador to Canada from 2009 to 2013 and is now Vice Chair of the BMO Financial Group. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure, and uh, I appreciate your your uh, reference to the long lines as the good old days. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that may be reality, right? I mean, we can't. Oh, well, could be. We just can't overstate how important it is, though, that when that border reopens, a proper plan is in place to handle the return of traffic, right? Well, it's got to be, first of all, the decision has to be made based on medical advice and scientific advice as to the when. But the how is is a different story. And it has to be done safely. It has to be done efficiently. And perhaps most importantly, it has to be done with a minimum amount of confusion. Uh, because, uh, you know, if the rules are chaotic, uh, people aren't going to know what to do and they're going to stay home. So when we take a look at that, you're right, the confusion can't be there. There needs to be a streamlined, foolproof system that is in place. There sort of is one. I mean, I'm thinking about Nexus cards, right? Uh, Something like that where, you know, the key component, I know in reading your piece was, you can't be doing this at the border. This has to be done ahead of time with just a quick verification at the border, right? Right. I think that there are two things that, that... the governments on both sides of the border, and and I mean both sides yeah. of the border, have to take into account. The first one is consistency. That if there are, you know, you don't have to be a genius to understand that if somebody crosses the border in one direction, in all likelihood they're going to cross it back in the other direction. Uh, and if the rules are different, going north and going south, you know, all bets are off. It's going to be a mess. So number one is consistency. But number two is, to your point, Shay, uh, and this is like Nexus, that, and, and back in the, as I always think about it, the good old days when I was the ambassador, in 2011, we entered into something between the United States and Canada called Beyond the Border. Right. And it was for people and for goods, and it expanded preclearance for people and goods. And the premise of the whole thing was that the border is the worst place to make decisions about whether people can cross or goods for that matter. Uh, That there are only so many kiosks at the airport, there are only so many lanes at the bridge, uh, there are only so many border crossing personnel. um, And if somehow or another you don't have the right stuff with you, which I must admit I have done myself, uh, (laughs) it was quite embarrassing, Uh, but but if you don't have the right stuff, you're going to be disappointed in, and you won't be able to remedy it. You know, I didn't bring the right piece of paper. I didn't bring the right yeah. document. And so this has got to be done ahead of time. And that, that you know, yes, we do have Nexus. Nexus itself does not include those things which you would need in order to get COVID preclearance. Sure. But it should not be all that hard to to add, whether it's to Nexus or something else. And Canada, 
has a kind of a running start here with the arrived can application that they've been using or started to to use uh, to deal with the quarantine issue. Uh, but it could easily be adapted to what we're talking about here. One of the problems is there isn't an analogous thing on the U.S. side. Um, and so one of the things, again, going back to my consistency point, one of the things that, that the governments on both sides need to do is work together so that the rules are as close to the same. Maybe they don't have to be perfectly the same, although that'd be nice but as close to the same as they possibly can so that this thing will move efficiently. Um, and, you know, if they do that, we're in good shape. If they don't, then, as you mentioned at the beginning, those days of long lines at the border will seem like the good old days. <laughs> and, I mean, that's the thing. is It has to be done on both sides of the border in order to make it as, as effortless as possible. And as you say, we, we've done it before. Are they working on it? I mean, obviously they recognize the importance of this don't they? Or am I being too optimistic here? There, no, you're not being optimistic. Everybody understands the importance of this. Everybody understands it. Um, and and one of the things that you know, the immediate question is the when. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I I do believe that those decisions are going to be made on both sides, not based on a calendar and not based on polls and not based on politics, but based on science. But but, you know, having been involved in this and understanding how delicate the rules for crossing the border and the cooperation between the two governments on that is, uh, and, and the goodwill that exists between the governmental authorities on both sides of the border who deal with these things, um, you know, I, I am quite confident that they are working together on this. Now, what they come up with uh, I can't speak to, you know, I'm not there anymore. And, you know, if I was, uh, I probably wouldn't be telling. <laughs> now, when we talk about this, it's an interesting point that you make. Um, the fact is, you can't open the borders, I don't think, until you have something like this um, in place. You need to have some sort of a plan, at least, before you open it. So, you're right. I think the the science will be the guiding influence on when we open the border. But, could this be delayed if they say, you know what, we, we haven't quite come up with a way to make this work yet? I mean, that's got to be a consideration, well, isn't it? That that would be unfortunate, okay. Uh, it, I won't say it's impossible, but it would certainly be unfortunate. And, and a related point to that, Shay, is that the rules can't keep changing yes. every week. Uh, that people have to know what it is that they're supposed to do, because if there's not clarity... You know, there are a couple of possibilities. One is a whole lot of people are going to get disappointed when they get to the border, which isn't good. Or perhaps even worse, people are just going to say, ah, you know, I can't figure this out. I'm staying home. Um, and, you know, I, I know from talking to my friends in Canada, I know from talking to people, I get calls every day close to every day from someone that I know who wants to go to Canada for vacation. They got mm -hmm. home there, they, they got a hotel reservation, whatever they've got, and they're asking, am I going to be able to get there? And I think a lot of them think somehow or another, because I used to be the ambassador, I have some <laughs> magic code or something that'll get them across the border, which I don't. But, but 
people want to go. People want to go see their families on both sides of the border. People want to go across the border for work, even though they're not essential employees. Uh, people want to go on vacations. And if they don't know what they need to do to get across the border, or worse yet, to get back, uh, they're not going to go. And, and that would be bad. So we've got to have a set of rules. The rules have to be clear. Hopefully they're consistent on both sides of the border. And hopefully they involve some sort of an online process, uh, whether it's an app right. or you go online or something. Um, so that you're told before you get there, you're okay. You're, and maybe better yet, you can go into an express lane um, so that you kind of whiz through and all those CBSA and CBP guards on both sides of the border, they can spend the time not with you and me because we've dealt with what we need to do ahead of time, but with the people who haven't. So it's better for everybody. Again, you're talking about the Trusted Traveler program. Uh, I know you're a busy guy, and I got one more before I let you get out of here. Um, as sure. somebody who was involved with the um, Beyond the Border program and in these negotiations and these discussions, I think a lot of us have this opinion that, you know, hey, Joe Biden and Joe, Justin Trudeau get along. You know, everybody's friendly. This should be really easy. Everybody understands the importance. Let's just do it. Um, I imagine there's a lot of other discussions, and there's some negotiating that goes on. What's it like in working with a, you know, a cross-border policy like this? Well, let me say a couple of things. First of all, your premise that Justin Trudeau and Joe Biden get along well, I can speak from personal experience in this. They like each other. They respect each other. They get along about as well as two heads of state could get along. That's good. So it starts from there. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, the nuts and bolts of these things don't get negotiated by the prime minister and the president. Um, they get in, they get negotiated by people down the way, um, and the the more senior people who are involved in the thing hopefully are going to set the tone so that it moves ahead. Um, but one of the things that I learned, and I was involved in many of these negotiations, but one of the things I, I learned is there are complexities. Some of them are cultural differences. Some of them are legal differences on both sides of the border um, that have to be complied with. Um, and they're not the same necessarily on both sides of the border. You know, I, I used to, I still say, Canada and the United States are very much alike in many fundamental ways, but they're not the same. Right. And they never will be the same, and they probably never should be the same. Uh, that there are values that Canadians have that are a little bit different sometimes than Americans and vice versa. Uh, there's certainly a, a, a cultural and a, and a legal history that are different. Um, and so when you sit down for these discussions, sometimes it gets more complicated than I would have thought. And, and I know your listeners are sitting there sure. going, well, you know, why can't they just sit down and, you know, in 15 minutes just decide how to do this? It's a little tougher than that. Um, the other thing that's sometimes tougher is, and particularly in what we're talking about with preclearance, is there are these massive computer systems on both sides of the border. And, you know, I can't get my Wi-Fi to work at home, so I'm not <laughs> the guy to tell, tell you how to deal with this. But it's not easy. 
Um, and these, these systems have to be able to talk to one another. Um, and, and so sometimes there are just plain, you know, technical, technical barriers yeah. have to be solved. Right. And, and so it isn't as easy as, uh, as, as, as I would like it to be, as you would like it to be, or as the prime minister and the president would like it to be. But it's because doable. Because we start out with our hearts in the right place, and that has virtually always been the case. And there were a few bumps in the last administration, but more than a few bumps. But 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 historically, we are the best of neighbors. You know, I I, I always say that there are no two countries anywhere in the world neighbors who would not trade their problems for the problems that Canada and the United States have. You know, we, we, we got it really good. It's not perfect, yeah. but it's really good. Um, and because we start out with that premise, because of the mutual respect uh, and the goodwill that has existed for a very long time, uh, I am confident that they'll work this thing out. Uh, Mr. Jacobson, thank you so much. That's great insight and some some valuable information for our listeners. I appreciate it. All right, and uh, hello to all my friends. In the- Excellent. Thank you very much. David Jacobson, who was the U.S. Ambassador to Canada from 2009 to 2013, so he knows what he's talking about. He was part of the Beyond the Border negotiations, and as he said, we're starting from a good place but there's still a lot of wrangling we'll have to get through. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.